Paul, we'll get started. At the end of the day, this is all about 1,000-point swings in the Dow, 5% swings in the S&P. Correct now, let me just check. Um, S&P's about to go unchanged after being down a few percent. NASDAQ was down over three and is about to go unchanged as well. I know that you have talked at length about margin-related selling, and I think that I have one pushback against that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, why it's happening, if it's going to end. Is this the magical buying opportunity the pundits on CNBC like to like to espouse? What are, your, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, okay, so I think that we have to explain what's going on and try to figure out ex post facto. We try to figure out what is causing all of this, this sudden violent movement in the last eight or 10 weeks. And I think it just comes from an accumulation of maybe five to seven IPOs that were done almost concurrently over a two to three week period where we had one after the other of major you know, IPOs, you know, anywhere between one and a half to three billion. And they were consistent flops. And a lot of these people got so courageous that they went to their private banks and the private banks were more than willing to accommodate leverage to participate in the IPOs. And then what happened was you saw a, a, a big cascade of flops that have spilled out into the other parts of the equity market. Come on, don't tell me that we're not seeing a leverage unwind when all the darling stocks are the ones that are imploding and, and the five big ones, right? The S&P, someone called it the S&P 5, right? Were, you know, doing very well up until recently. And so there's something going on. And the only way that you can explain that two-tiered world is through some reckless, irresponsible, uh, high net worth leverage that was spilled out into the darling equity tech stocks, some of which are in the, the money metaverse portfolio. What we've seen is basically the, the margin unwind, the margin debt, right? The, the, the more the stock falls, the, the more your broker dealer is, is obligated to liquidate your, your portfolio. The more it falls, the more they liquidate, the more it falls. And so we're in a world now where we need to uncover how much leverage we're talking about. Now, maybe it's a small number, but we know for a fact, Paul, that up until December, up until a few weeks ago, that number hit $1 trillion, And that number was at $600 billion. Sorry, margin, margin lending, you mean? Margin, margin lending. Margin, margin, margin lending. lending. And, and, and this was very concentrated. It wasn't across the market. It was very concentrated. And I went back and looked, and by the way, we have to talk about this too. There's a little bit of some naughty behavior going on here because I went back and looked at a lot of these darling IPOs and a lot of them lead back to- our friend, very, You're not going to say our friends at SoftBank by any chance, are you? No, 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 no. SoftBank is not a, an underwriter, but they are. They do lead back to our very good friends. And it starts with G and ends with S. <laughs> And, and was once called the vampire squid. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what happened was, see, you know, and, and, and of course, what happened in the last three to four years, you, you and I were talking about this, where everybody who was like getting catapulted up the ranks and was doing a B round and C round and D round and doing great, there was always the golden guy or the golden lady who was the CFO, the CEO, the CIO, the, you know, the, the chief technology officer, the marketing director, whatever, who, who had come from a three, five, nine-year stint at Goldman. And, and I was just looking through quite a few of these stinkeroonies. I mean, the one that stands out for me, Matt, is Copang, right? I mean, it's remarkable. I think it's had fallen 75% of its IPO price. Which one? Copang, the Korean e-commerce company. Well, yeah, so many, so many, so many. Yeah, Oscar, Lemonade, Paytm, Robinhood. Robinhood is down. 80, 85%, yeah. 
Um, it was 80 percent plus. And look at the one that bothers me a lot that, that I sent you is some stuff that I had sent out to clients is MicroStrategy, which had uh, borrowed at least uh, $3.1 billion on a very on a good company with a good business, with ha- which has you know unlevered $500 million revenue business with a $500 million book value, right? And, and now you've got three plus billion of Bitcoin and we don't know what the cost average was, but you know when you have that small of, of a leverage base, uh, that large, your leverage is something like six to one, six to one on a seventy ball on a on a seventy ball instrument. Yeah, and you're looking at something where the debt to EBITDA is like north of twenty, and so this uh, so a seventeen percent drop in their cost average wipes out their equity value. Now, I think the technical right. term. I think the technical term you're looking for, Paul, is fucking stupidity. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, well, I mean, this is. I was just reflecting on this today. The human mind is a very fragile creature, <laughs> and man, oh man, do we get suckered into thinking things that just aren't true, and, and it happens all the time. So remember back, and it probably wasn't. It was probably no less than a year ago that. Every treasury department and every major and equi- every major company on the planet was going to allocate ten percent of its treasury holdings to Bitcoin. And remember when when Tesla first Tesla first did it, and they they bought Bitcoin. I think they around the start of twenty twenty one at about they had a hundred. They bought one point five billion dollars worth of Bitcoin at the start of twenty twenty one, around a thirty thousand dollar average. Yeah. And and then they then they announced in typical Elon form announced announced after the buying which ramped which ramped it. Then they announced that they would allow Teslas to be bought bought with Bitcoin. And then in a matter of weeks they reversed the whole thing, right? Just and it was just idiocy that this whole notion that and this is a bigger broader conversation that that something that Bitcoin as a seventy vol instrument and it's a slightly less than that now, but had a valid and legitimate place within a within a corporate treasury, which is the the lowest risk elements of what any company does. It's just lunacy. But that was the euphoria. This wasn't just a crypto. wasn't just a crypto thing. It was a you know the companies that you named. You've done work on the bubbles in insurance tech and prop tech and and all this sort of stuff. But look, right at the end of the day, we've had this remarkable provision of liquidity from global central banks to deal with the the fractures to the global economy that was COVID. At the start of this process, no one could say that that was anything but appropriate, right? Do we, banks, yep. central banks and governments around the world had to look after their people as the pandemic forced the world shut, right? Yeah. Now, did did we go on for too long? It's We've got clear evidence, and one could argue that some of the inflation pressures that we are witnessing is a, is a consequence of that. I think labor shortages are a consequence of that. But I look at the, the moves in, in NASDAQ in particular, and I think you do have to differentiate between the between mega cap tech or what I call the world's best companies, right? So there's in my in my opinion, the likes of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, they are some of the world's greatest companies. And you have to differentiate between them. And, well, between wait, and, and I say that they're, they're some of the world's greatest monopolies. Let's yeah, Oh, no, 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 but, the, but they are what they are, right? Look, again, you and I run research businesses. 
If we could be a monopoly, we would be a monopoly. <laughs> we just, we're just not lucky. I've, I've fucked up on so many levels. My research business is not a monopoly, and I used to work at Goldman Sachs, and I never took advantage of the corruption. So I've screwed up on both levels, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was like clean as a whistle, like an idiot at Lehman Brothers. What thinking? But, but no, mate. I think look, we're at this stage now where we are transitioning away from this extraordinary liquidity condition, right? Yeah. For me, the most telling thing that we've had in the last few days is what appears to me is a clear disconnect between what equity markets are saying. And what fixed income markets are saying. You've had thousand point swings in the Dow in the Dow in the last couple of days. You've had five percent swings in the Nasdaq in the last couple of days. Yet the U.S. Bit, yet the Treasury market, both at the front end of the curve in terms of what is currently being priced for the Fed, which is in alignment with the Fed, i.e., four hikes for 2022, and the back end of the curve where the old safe haven assets of five years owning duration, five years and out, remarkably stable, remarkably boring which says to me that your leverage arguments are valid, that the, the fixed income markets are quite comfortable where the, about what the, the message the Fed is giving us, i.e. the Fed and the markets are pretty much in alignment about, as we stand today, the number of hikes that we will see this year and, mm-hmm. and, next, and next. And this is an equity market issue. And frankly, this gives me confidence that eventually once these near-term factors like excessive leverage, margin unwinds and all that sort of stuff do occur, we have an environment where particularly mega cap technology companies, which have been, you know, Amazon's down 20, 25% from peak, then there's some compelling arguments to be made for high quality tech if if interest rate volatility is going to remain low in the near term. And that for me gives me a little bit of confidence to, to buy some NASDAQ like we did, like I did yesterday, and the like. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a compelling case. We got to make sure that the leverage unwind doesn't start to become systemic. And the way that I look at that is I look at the high yield market relative to the investment grade. Yep. And that, that, that has blown out a bit, that, that spread has blown out a bit. What I think is missing in the picture about people talking about rate increases is the 10 year bond is doing for it what the Fed doesn't want to do for itself. I mean, the 10-year has moved from 148 to one whatever it is today, 175. Yep. That, that's a very big move. I mean, that's not stable. That's a very big move. Well, but that's, let's put that into context, though. I mean, the, you, the U.S. 30-year bond is a, bit, a smidge over 2%, right? So real 30 yields in the United States are negative 5%. Now, yep. admittedly, yep. both of those are a snapshot in time because they can, so they can be extreme. But at the end of the day, the fixed income markets, I think duration is telling us something. And particularly long duration. So, oh, sorry. Here's what duration. You know, here's what a stable back, stable back end of the curve is telling us. It's telling us it's not worried about dollar debasement. It's telling us we're not worried about fiscal deficits, and it's telling us we're not worried about the long-term trajectory of inflation. Because if any of those three preconditions were being priced in the U.S. fixed income market, the term premium for the term premium would be dramatically wider than it is today. Um, Fair and, enough. And, the, and the US government wouldn't be able to fund for three decades at a smidge over 2% a year. So well, I think. Fair, fair enough. But I think that we're talking about a monopsonist, right, actor in this market, which is the Federal Reserve. And so there's a lot of, you know, legitimate manipulation, which we need, thank God. Or I think the 10 year out could become unanchored. I think there's a lot of fear about that. But, okay. but I think very carefully manipulated, which is fair. Uh, you know, that's, what, that's the Fed's job. 145 was the low, and we went up to almost 190. That is a very big move. 
Yeah, sure. so, absolutely. But I, I do want to talk about one thing about the, this whole thing about quantitative tightening, which is going around, right? So and a, a little story I want to share with you. Well, one of the question. In the last 30 years, how many central banks have actually sold bonds at the end of their QE programs, right? We talked a little bit about this last week. And the answer is no. No one's ever done it. But they were, they were, they were disaster areas. Yeah, Lebanon, Nicaragua, and the Philippines. And these were disaster areas, yeah. It's so funny. So I listened to a Goldman Sachs conference call earlier today talking about the Fed and the like, and they were talking about the unwinding of the Fed's balance sheet as if it's some sort of process that is just going to be a smooth and seamless thing, right? When the bank, when the, sorry, when the Ministry of Finance used to intervene in, in dollar yen, right, they would not go out and sell yards and yards and yards of dollars to, to stabilise the yen or to, or, or, to, or to buy the yen as they did back, sorry, to, to, to buy the yen as they did up at 150 in 1998, they'd buy 25 or $50 yen, right? So what they would do is they'd bring up, they'd bring up the JP Morgan or Nomura or Goldman Sachs FX desk and say, hello, this is the Ministry of Finance and we're intervening today. Can we please get a bid in $50 million yen? And then five minutes later, things are 5% moved in the other direction because you didn't need to, to sell hundreds, tens of billions of dollars of, secure, of, of, of bonds or dollars to move it. You just had to give them the intent that this was happening, right? So the notion that somehow this Federal Reserve, and we go back to comments from Janet Yellen, I think in 2014, saying for us to be able to raise rates, we need stable asset markets, right? Because we can't raise rates in an unruly asset market environment because it just clouds the whole picture. And we face a similar thing today where... There's no way that the Fed can go, as the biggest holder of treasuries, can announce the selling of those treasuries and want at the same time to be able to control how high yields go in the markets and how unruly things get. Because, put it this way, our friends at Goldman Sachs, if the Goldman Sachs prop desk gets a hint that the Fed is hitting the bid in two, you know, explain to our viewers who don't know trading that well, what would the Goldman Sachs uh, prop desk do after hearing that the Fed was selling treasuries? Oh, I think they would probably sell the other side. They would probably call the other side of the desk on the other side of the trade. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. even think they'd probably, I don't even know if they'd even go to the other side of the desk, right? But they'd sell treasuries too. And then <laughs> JP Morgan would sell treasuries. And then our hedge fund yeah. friends would sell treasuries. And suddenly the bond vigilantes have got something to do again, right? Yeah. So yeah. the notion that the quantitative, the quantitative tightening implies the selling of securities outside of the organic maturity of mature, of maturity roll-offs because of maturities implies that the, the Fed's balance sheet, which is you know, incredibly elevated by historical standards, is going to decline, but decline at a gradual pace based on maturities that aren't rolled over, right? So I think that the notion of unruly moves in fixed income, which frankly, we haven't seen, right? 145 to 190, a 45 basis point move is nothing. Well, again, I'm showing my age, but I started my career in, 19, in February 1994 at Macquarie Bank in Sydney. And in February 1994, the Fed decided to raise rates, right, and do it in an unruly way. And you had 10-year bond yields go up 300 basis points in a year, right? Yeah. Well, no, it's fair. That's fair. That's fair. And so, no, I, I started my career in 1989 in Indonesia, and I saw rates going from like uh, <laughs> 11 to 40, and then back to 11, and then up to 40. Yeah, I think that's right. One of my old uh, really good mentors on the fixed income side, he said, go back to 2008 and go look at the aggregate level of debt in the United States. And you see that the damage that was done in 2008, which was 
probably $2 trillion in equity wipeout, right? Look at the level of debt, how much that level of debt went down. And the answer is probably in total, the total aggregated debt of the United States went down maybe one, maybe 2%. Sorry, that's public, private. Correct. And that small reduction in aggregated debt gave you the GFC, right? And so what we have now in 2021 and 22 is an aggregate increase in global debt of $50 trillion, right? It went up by $50 trillion in during the pandemic, right? And, and the US is responsible for probably 10 trillion of that. The EU is probably responsible for another like eight or 10 trillion that the, the, the US is government debt, the EU is largely corporate debt that the ECB has been buying, yep. you know, China's debt, Japan's debt, et cetera, the rest of the world. And so I'm sorry, anybody who is talking about sort of a winding down of balance sheet has no understanding of balance sheets because it's like the margin call, right? A margin call is an unwinding of a balance sheet. And you almost inevitably get into asset price deterioration on your asset side of the balance sheet as your equity, as your liabilities go down. So either, right, either your equity has to go up or your asset prices have to go down. So if the world can say, okay, we're going to reduce our debt by 50 trillion. We need 50 trillion in savings. In other words, we need 50 trillion in equity. Right. Or we need 50 trillion less in assets. So you guys need to decide we're going to have to either save more or have an asset price fire sale. And asset price fire sale is super ugly for the banking system. It wipes out the banking system. Ask Japan. Japan's banking system has been wiped out three times in a row. And, and, And the Bank of Japan is not going to let that happen again. And that's why. They've had to keep on, they've decided to keep on increasing the, the size of the Bank of Japan's balance sheet because in the past, they've tried to increase taxes and reduce the, the balance sheet and it wipes out the banking system. And Japan keeps falling back into recession. And Ben Bernanke knew that to be the case. He built his whole reputation on that, right? And now I think Powell talking about this like fiscal Republican austerity, I think is just total nonsense. It, it just doesn't ring true in any historical sense of the word. And so I absolutely agree with you. I read the Goldman Sachs 2022 outlook today. You know, it just talks about a lot of this same stuff, but I think the margin debt on the equity side is really important. I agree with you. Look at the combination of the government debt yields uh, uh, relative to the high yield spreads, very stable. But I'm looking at the funny, I'm looking at the the Barclays um, 10-year spread, corporate 10-year spread, high yield spread. And we've gone, we're still below a 12-month high. So, you know, we got to 140 around Thanksgiving. And we are now about 320 over, which in the historical context is nothing, right? Is, is, yeah. abs- is, is, absolutely, is absolutely nothing. But I'm going to answer a question for me. And I go, I, well, sorry, I don't go back and forth because I have very strong views on this. I, when people talk about the repayment of debt, right, particularly government debt, I don't believe governments have to repay debt. I think it's very healthy for governments to have functioning bond markets that deep and liquid and you can and to have a a continual level of outstanding debt that allows for for, for you know to people to use for margin and and collateral and all these sort of issues right where do you stand on government debt dynamics and and the like and, and levels of sustainability 
Well, on the one hand, if your yields on your current debt are like one and a half, two percent, you should be borrowing as much as possible because the chances of getting nominal growth that's going to be in excess of two percent are pretty good. When you do get to an absolute level of debt that is 100, 120, 130 percent of GDP, if you do have a situation where rates begin to spike, what happens is, and what happened in the case of the Philippines when I was at Credit Suisse in the early 90s, was the rise in rates as inflation takes over, eats into your budget and becomes 30, 40, 50 percent of budget outlays, right? Your, your, your budget gets, gets, gets destroyed by interest payments. And, that, that's the, and, and then what happens is your central bank goes broke, your economy goes broke, and then you got to keep printing money. And then, of course, who, who recapitalizes the central bank? The Congress, right? The Philippine Congress recapitalizes the central bank. And when they did that, they said, you know what? You guys are jokers. We're taking over because you don't know what you're doing. And then you get all kinds of mess, right? Or, because- or, or, in other cases, or, the, or the IMF, as was the case during the Asian crisis, and the IMF imposed a bunch of standards on on you know the likes of Korea and Thailand and, uh, and like, which frankly, in, in a lot of cases, didn't really work that well. Well, hold on a second, Paul. After that, that two or three years of just catastrophic pain, Indonesia's had a boom for 15 years, right? Korea has I, but I don't I don't know if the I, I don't know if that's in, in spite of the IMF or because again what you have had and in the Asian context I think you've got a lot more the economic stewards that run Asian economies both from a central bank and a, and a government policy standpoint they're just better at what they do they're a lot better at what they do and that ranges from mm-hmm. you know, Indonesia is a very strong functioning governance driven economy now Right, it's it's from a, at an official level. So I don't know if that was in spite of the IMF or due to it. Well, I worked for the IMF and I worked in the central bank in Jakarta as my first job before I went to Credit Suisse. And I would say they learned an extremely painful lesson because don't forget that currency went from two thousand to twenty five thousand. Right, Indonesia was completely wiped out and the economy shrank by 15%. It was a worse, it was, it was a worse depression than 1930-31 in America. Oh. In Thailand, same thing. The, the, the bot went from 25 to 70, right? What has happened in the recent past is these countries are livid with the West because the West was completely profligate in the response to the GFC while they made Asia go through this terrible, grinding, painful austerity. And they're like, really? Oh, that's so interesting that you think you, you don't need to do what you imposed on us. And so that's, that's where the agree to disagree on market economies and capitalism just went out the window exactly. and where, where nationalism has taken over, especially in Thailand, I think to a certain extent also in Indonesia. And I think China was just like, you guys are jokers. We can do a better job than this. You don't have to destroy the, econ- the global economy. So we're just going to go in our own corner and do our own thing. And we don't even want to have the IMF and the World Bank come to the offices of the PBOC or or the Ministry of Finance. I was there in 2008 when I was at Lehman Brothers talking to CIC, and they were like, don't you ever let anybody from the World Bank or the IMF in to see the CIC ever again after what you guys have just pulled. So. But again, for the, and again, this is you and I are talking about books here and showing our age a little bit. For the young kids who are listening to this right now, look at the Asian crisis. Look at the the austerity packages that the likes of Thailand and Korea went through. I mean, yeah, there were there were stories of the Korean central bank taking gold teeth from people 
to melt down for FX Reserve. That's a true story. Yes. They're selling their jewelry and giving their money to the the Bank of Korea. They were selling. They went out and sold their jewelry. You know, stuff like that. It was. It was. It was. But it was awful. It was just all an awful time. And I think at the end of the day, the the ways that countries respond to crises have altered dramatically. Now, I don't know if it's altered dramatically to justify what we're seeing in Turkey at the moment, which is a, I think could best be described as an unconventional economic theory where you believe that higher interest rates actually cause inflation and cutting rates into a higher inflationary period, which is, uh, as put it minimum, Paul, not what the textbooks tell us we should do. But I do think we've, we, I do think that the, the, the emerging world has a lot to be proud of in the ways that they've handled, you know, Western Agreed. economic crises in the last, in the last, in particularly in the last 15 years. Especially Indonesia. Yeah, no, Indonesia's done a very good job. Perfect. But what do we, we got for, what do you got coming up this week? What's- so what I'm looking at is, well, one of the things that, that I think has not been paid close enough attention to is that while the, the, the US certainly, and I think the UK, less so with the EU, we are in a tightening phase right now, right? We are going into undoubtedly some kind of probably moderate, mediocre, less tightening, but some tightening. And China is going into an easing phase. And I know everybody hates China. They hate Chinese equities. They, the Communist Party is evil. And if you talk about China, you're going to be labeled as a communist. That's okay. But let's just cool down. I, I like your note that, that you sent to your clients was just cool off. And let's not be like sort of either chicken littles or, or just whiny and complaining about the... the, 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 the yeah. China is in an easing phase. China's been in a tight phase. That's why the RMB has been so strong. China's been sort of squeezing the economy for like three years. And they, they squeeze the hell out of Evergrande and, and the equity is worthless, right? Yep. And so what's happening now is we are going to go to lower interest rates. And you heard it here first. I think China will eventually move from a world that we've known for 10 years, which has been sort of voluntary reserves, right? So, sorry, required reserves. We're moving into a world of voluntary reserves for the PBSC. In other words... Banks are going to go from being forced to keep liquidity in the central bank to, to cool things down, and they're going to be switching toward, with too much liquidity going around, they're going to be doing what the West is doing, which is they're going to be placing their, their funds in the central bank voluntarily, voluntary reserves. Mm. And that means that the PBOC is going to have a lot of room to purchase a lot of government debt. And so I think... It's funny, as someone said to me, Reese, you want to be long China risk parity. So long China fixed income and equity, and short U.S. risk parity. Like I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. Have a pro- yeah, no, the equity side of things is a bit more clouded um, than the fixed income side. Absolutely. I think that makes loads of sense. Yeah, yeah. I know people are completely turned off of equities from a policy point of view that, that China's on the rampage of just like wrecking people who have a problem with you know, the party direction. That's fair. That's fine. Right. Uh, but I, I think China is going to go through what the America went through in the early 20th century, which is it's going to have to consolidate a tremendous amount of the industries into some oligopolies in order to stabilize this system in, in China, which is so hyper competitive. America well, would have that with the SOEs, right? So that you do you do have that with a lot of SOEs. Obviously, things like the property market is very disparate and the like. You have that in the railways, less so. You, know, you have far fewer airlines than you do in the United States. You have an oligopoly in airlines. You could argue you could have an oligopoly in major banks as well. 
the listed banks are only about 40% of the uh, of the market. The, the other 60% of the market is 10,000 cooperatives, right? Uh, right? Look at the car companies, right? The largest car company in China has maybe a 5% market share. Look at the look at textiles, chemicals, industrial manufacturing, anything, just about anything. You've got a the retail market, any retail products, any sort of like tennis shoes, any sort of sports clothing. These are all companies with one, two, three percent market share. Cars, it's five max. And so there's dozens of those industries that need to be consolidated. And that's what America did in the early 20th century. Well, that said, I think that I do I do think that that, that said, I think you've got the way China is structured, the way the West is structured, remarkably similar, right? You you have dominance of individual tech firms, right? That they're they're the latest version of the monopoly or oligopoly is, is mega cap tech. But but you know, even even a company like Amazon, which is you know perceived to be the dominant online retailer, they have what? They have less than 15% of global of US retail sales, right? So I'd argue that the US is probably the China's not much less unconcentrated, or the US is not that much more concentrated than China is. So the economies are, I think, remarkably similar in that regard. I don't agree. Look look at ABC and and the food groups, right? Bungie, AMD, and uh, Cargill. Yeah. They control the food industry. Three car companies control the the car industry. AT&T and Verizon control basically broadband. Airlines are controlled by four companies. Banks are controlled by three companies. Commercial banks are controlled by three banks. I can go on and on and on. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I don't care about Amazon's, you know, uh, total market. How much, what's the percentage market share of Amazon's online sales? It's probably 80. No, I think it's about a third. I think it's about a third of online sales. Okay, right. So still big number, still big number, right? But but Google's a monopoly. Amazon is close to a. It controls the industry. It sets prices. Let's put it, it does, that way. It does. That, that's Apple good. sets prices. Microsoft sets prices. So we go through one by one, and America's a very concentrated economy in so many different ways. And, and I think China's going to have to to do something like that in the next ten years. And when you do that, you consolidate the debt. You throw the debt into long term seven ten year. Uh, you term it out. You give it to the pension and the insurance funds, and then everyone sits on it for a long period of time. And that's what's going to have to happen to the property debt as well. I think that's where China is going. And so, so that's going to be an interesting opportunity in the next, in 2022, relative to the US. I, I think, and I think, by the way, that means that the CNY can really begin to weaken finally against the dollar because the, the CNY is way too strong. Yeah. Mate, have a great week. We'll talk to you shortly. Okay, my friend, love your insights. Yes, I really uh, think you're really on, on to something with a few of the things you said. And we'll have to keep those high yields um, spreads a look carefully. But right now, those are telling us that the overall, this leverage problem in the equity world is not spilling over into the overall economy. So I think that's right. Remarkably stable. Have a great week, mate. Talk to you shortly. Great stuff, Paul. Thank you so okay. much. Bye.